0: Alright brothers and sisters, once again we come to God's Word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I encourage you to look at it with me in your copy of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you that you can use. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're actually going to be doing the whole chapter today. It's only 13 verses long. Now, as you open to it, I don't know about your copy, but in, in my Bible there are headings above different sections. And so you'll probably see that in your own. And in my Bible, the heading over chapter 8 says, Food Offered to Idols. Now some of you might be sitting there saying, What in the world does this have to do with me today? Food Offered to Idols. What in the world does this have to do with me? And the answer is, everything. This has everything to do with us today. The principle that we will see in the text today could not be more relevant, not only for all times, but specifically for the, the times in which we are living in, in modern day America. The Christian life is a life of self sacrificing love. In fact, that, that might actually be a really good way to sum up everything, right, in the Christian life. It's self sacrificing love. It starts with Jesus on the cross, you see it all throughout the pages of the New Testament. We've seen it all over 1 Corinthians so far. Self-sacrificing love really is the Christian life. It's what we've been called to, right? It's a call to come and die, we just sang. A self-sacrifice, dying to yourself for the good of others. Christianity is self-sacrificing love. Now, if you remember, and this is months back now, in chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, we saw Paul encouraging the Corinthian believers to lay down their right to defend themselves rather than go to court against a brother or sister in Christ. There we saw Paul say things like, Why not rather suffer wrong than, than have lawsuits among yourselves? Why not rather be defrauded than have this division amongst the body of Christ with brothers and sisters going to law, going to court against one another? Well, this week, we find another example of Paul telling us that following Christ... Means laying down your rights. Following Christ means laying down your rights. We're going to read the, the text. We're going to read all of chapter 8, 13 verses, so stick with me. But it's not too long of a chapter, so I thought we could do the whole thing. Uh, We're we'll starting verse 1. This is God's word to us. Paul writes Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God. The Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, my, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Alright, now, you see how this, this text and this situation is kind of far removed from our everyday experiences here in modern America, right? There, there are probably those Christians across the world who live in such a culture where they read this and this, this just automatically makes complete sense to them. But we read it and we think, that's, that's a whole nother world, right? And so we kind of need to start by getting our minds wrapped around what's going on in Paul's day, what's going on in this situation that he's speaking to. And I think one thing that can help is a fictional situation to help us think through this. Imagine two Christians in the first century. Both are men. One is an older man with a godly family. He's grown up in a godly family. His grandparents were good Orthodox Jews who followed the Old Testament, followed God's laws, and taught their children to know the Lord. Then his parents were good Orthodox Jews who followed the laws and taught their children to know the Lord. And only recently, remember this is the first century, this older man has become a Christian. And he's been walking with Christ for years now. But he understands so much about following the Lord because he grew up in a godly home. Now the other Man, Remember I said there were two Christians. The other man is a younger man who came from a pagan family. Generations of idol worshippers teaching him about a multiplicity of gods. No thought to who the real God is. No, no familiarity with the Bible or the Old Testament scriptures. But this younger man recently has started having conversations with this older man. And through the patient and loving evangelism of that older man, the younger man converts to Christ becomes a Christian was a pagan Gentile, and now is a new Christian, a young Christian. Now, these two men quickly become friends, and one day they're eating in a market. They sit down at a public table, and meat is set before them. And the younger man asks the server, where did this meat come from? And the answer is, well, we bought it from that pagan temple over there. It was used to sacrifice to their God this morning, and then we bought it, and now we're serving it to you. Well, the older man goes ahead and eats without any thought. No big deal. It's just food. But the younger man is conflicted. He pauses and thinks, should I eat this? Everyone else is eating, but it's been offered to a pagan god. This this feels wrong to me. But my friend over there is eating. My friend who is godly, coming from a godly family. I, I guess I should eat too. Maybe this isn't wrong. Or, or maybe my friend over there doesn't have a problem with worshiping many gods. I don't know. And so, having many doubts and no confidence, he goes ahead and eats like the rest of the table. Do you get the idea? You get the idea of what Paul is, is speaking to? This issue that he's talking about? The older man's conscience does not cause him any guilt whatsoever. Why? Because of his knowledge, right? Because of how he has been trained to know the Lord and to know reality. He knows that an idol is nothing. He knows that an idol has no real existence. There are no other gods. There's only one God, right? There is only one God. And so meat that has been sacrificed to this idol, it has no spiritual significance. There's nothing spiritual going on when you're digesting that meat. He knows it's fine. It's not a big deal. And so he goes ahead without even thinking, right? But the younger man's conscience... Paul says, is weak. His former life has influenced his conscience heavily. Remember, he's a new Christian. His conscience is misinformed. It is overly sensitive. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating this meat, but for that younger man, it feels wrong. His conscience is pricking him. He feels like this is an identification with pagan gods. And for him, eating this meat has spiritual significance. This is the situation that we're facing. And the lesson to us, brothers and sisters, is not really about food. It's not really about food. It's about the principle underlying it that's still very much relevant to our lives today. Now, before we come to the main point of our passage, we need to ask a preliminary question. What is the conscience? What is the conscience? Many of you might have ideas on what a conscience is, right? But we want to make sure that God is informing what we think about reality, that God is telling us how to think about the world we live in. You might have seen an old school cartoon where a man is sitting there debating whether or not to do something that could be wrong, and all of a sudden pops on his shoulders a, a little devil and a little angel, right? Trying to talk him into it or prevent him from doing it. This is what a lot of people think when they hear the word conscience. But what does the Bible say? What does God tell us? Well, in Scripture, we learn that a God, the conscience is a God-given capacity for moral judgment. God-given. It's a capacity for moral judgment, and He gives it to every single human being. It's not just Christians. Even non-Christians have this conscience inside of them. So it's not the same as the Holy Spirit. It's a bit more rudimentary, if you will, than the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives, dwells inside of us, When we become Christians, right? when we're baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us. The Holy Spirit does convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit does lead us into the paths of righteousness. So the conscience, however, is something that God gives to every single human being, no matter who you are. right? So the Holy Spirit is kind of like a conscience, but much more. Conscience is some things the Holy Spirit does, but much more rudimentary. Now, is the conscience, is our conscience a reliable guide to our moral behavior and decisions? Well, one thing that Scripture teaches us is our consciences are not infallible. They can make mistakes. They can be misinformed. They can have the wrong level of sensitivity. But they are helpful. The Bible also tells us they are helpful. It is not good ever to go against your conscience. In Hebrews chapter 5, we learn that our consciences can be trained to work properly. Hebrews 5.14. Look up on the screens with me. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, watch this, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you hear conscience in there, even though they didn't use the word conscience? Right? It's your powers of discernment being trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we actually need to have our consciences trained for them to work properly, and that can happen. But the Bible also tells us our consciences can be distorted. You can distort your conscience. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 4, 2-3 of people who have had their consciences seared as with a hot iron. They've had their consciences seared. Now think about this with me for a second. If I had an iron, right... If I had an iron that was turned up to the max setting, full steam, been on for 30 minutes, just sitting there getting hot, right? It's all the way. And I lift up my sleeve, and I take that iron, and I put it right down on the flesh. And I leave it there for, let's say, a minute. Not that I could endure that, but let's say I do. I leave it there for a minute, and I take it off. What's happened to that place of flesh now? Well, it's going to go through all kinds of initial pain, but then what's going to happen? It's going to scab over. I've probably done nerve-ending damage to my flesh. I won't be able to feel what I'm supposed to feel on that part of my body. Right? That part of my body will no longer feel what it's supposed to feel. Perhaps a less gruesome example. My, my two hands are different because I play guitar. The ends of my fingertips over here have calluses all over them. I can't feel much of anything on the ends of my fingertips over here. And over here, I, I can, right? And so there's a difference there in, in feeling. So you can actually do that to your conscience. You can make your conscience callous over. You can sear it by constantly going against it, by constantly feeling that good and right prodding from your conscience and then turning away from it, saying no to it, suppressing the truth, and going ahead anyway. You do that enough, can sear your conscience, and it won't feel what it's supposed to feel. Now, on the flip side, certain people's consciences are overly sensitive. We saw that in our text today, where Paul talks about the man whose conscience is weak. It's misinformed. It's overly sensitive. Certain people feel guilt from their consciences about things that are not sinful in and of themselves. So there was nothing wrong with eating the meat for that young man, right? But, or I mean, for for the older man, there was nothing wrong with eating the meat. He he didn't think anything of it. And inherently, inherently, the act of eating that meat was not a sin. But for the young man, it would have been sin for him because of his conscience. It would have been sin for him because of his conscience. Now, I'm going to take you, and we're going to show this on the screen so you don't need to turn here. But I'm going to take you over to Romans 14. Now, Bible students, take, take note here in a second. Take, take a note of this, whether it's mentally or you might want to even write it down in your Bible. One of the things I want you to do as Bible students is always have connections in the Bible, either in your head or in your notes. And one of the, the connections that's always helpful to Bible students is Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 are two chapters in the Bible that speak of the same thing. The conscience and this idea of feeling guilt of things that aren't inherently sinful. And so any time... You're reading the Bible, studying the Bible. When you come to 1 Corinthians 8, you should also use Romans 14. And any time you come to Romans 14, also use 1 Corinthians 8. It's a connection in the Bible I want you to always have in your minds. I never teach one without the other. But in, in Romans 14, Paul talks about very similar things, food especially. In Romans 14, verse 14, we read this. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Now, did you hear what he's saying? Do you get the principle there? He's saying nothing is unclean in and of itself. Jesus pronounced all foods clean during his ministry. We read that in the Gospels. Remember Peter. Peter had that vision of a sheep being lowered onto the earth. And Jesus told him, Peter, kill these animals and eat them. It's okay. It's not unclean for you to do that anymore. So there's a difference between the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament and the freedom we have in Christ when it comes to food in the New Testament, the New Covenant. But Paul says, it's unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. It's not unclean inherently. It's unclean for anyone who thinks it is. And then he goes on in verse 23 of that same chapter, Romans 14, 23, to say this, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, For whoever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He's talking about our consciences there. And so we see this principle, I think, most helpfully quoted by a, a preacher, a minister named Mark Dever. Mark Dever says, Conscience can never make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. You get that? You see what he's saying there? Your conscience can never make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. If you are contemplating something that the Bible clearly defines as sin, and you don't feel any conviction from your conscience, that does not make it right to go ahead. Going ahead would still be sin, even if you don't feel anything in your conscience, right? Because the Bible clearly defines it as sin. But, on the other hand, if you are contemplating something and you're not sure, and you do feel conviction from your conscience that it would be wrong, then to go ahead would be sin. And so, Martin Luther once wisely said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Do not go against your conscience. When you are unsure, play it on the safe side. Don't go against your conscience. So, our consciences, brothers and sisters, are gifts from God, to help us, but they should never be given the same level of authority as God's external word. It's our conscience. Now, having said that, the main point of our text today, brothers and sisters, is not about the conscience, but it's about freedom in Christ and how we should apply that freedom. Freedom in Christ and how we should apply that freedom. Did you notice in our text how Paul is speaking primarily to those who think they are mature? right? There's, there's two categories of people here. The, the person with a weak conscience, the more immature Christian, and those who are mature, those who have a certain level of knowledge. Well, Paul's not speaking to the weak one. Paul's not saying, hey, all you guys with weak consciences, we need to get you stronger. Paul's not saying, hey, all of you who are misinformed, we need to correct that. You need to grow. That's not what Paul's saying, at least in this chapter. Here he's talking to those who feel they are mature, to those who feel they have a certain level of knowledge. That others might not have. And he's saying this. He's saying this. Never insist on your right to do something if it might cause another person to stumble. That's the lesson today. Never insist on your right to do something. Even if you have the right to do that thing. Never insist on your right to do something if it might cause another person to stumble. So let's think back to our our fictional account. What should the older man have done? The older man. Well, he should have had a sensitivity to this younger man coming from a pagan background, coming from an idol-worshipping family. When that server says, this food, we got it from that pagan temple over there. They used it to sacrifice to their God. That older man, he should have refrained from eating. Not because it would have been a sin just to eat that meat, but because he wanted to love and help his younger brother in the faith. Right? The sensitivity should have turned on right, now, right there. And he should have refrained. Not because it was inherently sinful, but because it could have led his younger brother to stumble. To stumble into another pattern of sin. That younger person was feeling the pull back from his idol-worshiping background. And so what we learn here, brothers and sisters, is that the mark of a true, mature believer... The mark of a mature believer is not knowledge. It's not knowing more than other people. The mark of a true believer, and a mature believer, is self-sacrificing love. Look at verse 1 with me, where Paul says, We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, it puffs up. Love builds up. You See, he's, he's not knocking knowledge. He's, saying, he's not saying don't learn. He's not saying don't know more about Christ or know more about the Bible. What he's saying is if you're using that knowledge to feel superior to others, you've got it all wrong. And by your knowledge, you could actually be leading other people into sin. What's more important than knowledge? Love. Self-sacrificing love. Paul would rather sacrifice something that he is genuinely free to do than to hurt someone else's relationship with Christ. Did you notice verses 10 through 13? They are kind of the crux of the passage, I would say. The the real crux of our passage is in verses 10 through 13. And there in verse 11, Paul says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. The brother for whom Christ died. It's as if Paul is saying, Christ gave up his life for this brother. I should at least be willing to give up a meal. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ right here. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus died for them. Jesus gave up his life for those around you. Are you not willing to sacrifice your preferences for them? Are you not willing to sacrifice your comfort for them? Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything for that person. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, he's probably using some hyperbole there in saying never. right? It probably would not come to this, but Paul is saying if that's what it took, it would be worth it. And would it not, brothers and sisters? Would it not be worth it to give up something that I I genuinely enjoy in this world for the rest of my life if it meant another person could come to Christ? Would it not be worth it to give up something that I'm free to enjoy in my life? It's not a sin. I'm free to enjoy it. Would it not be worth it for me to give up that for the rest of my life if it meant someone else could come to know Jesus or someone else could keep knowing Jesus and not be led astray? Of course it would. Of course it would. This is one of the practical ways God is calling us to love others more than we love ourselves. How do you do that practically? Loving others more than you love yourself. Well, we must be willing to give up our rights for the sake of helping others know and love the Lord. Now, let's talk some practical application for today for a moment. Practical application for today. Let me give you one for me personally here that, that, that actually fits really well with the principle that Paul is, is talking about here in chapter 8. Alcohol. Alcohol is one for me, all right? Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that you can go to to prove to anyone else that alcohol is inherently a sin. You can't prove from the Bible that having a drink of alcohol is a sin. There's nothing sinful about someone having a glass of wine with dinner or having a beer with friends, right? Now, you can clearly see in Scripture how drunkenness is a sin. Right? Ephesians 5.18 is as clear as it gets. Do not get drunk, right? Right? talk about proverbs and all of the different ways where where alcohol and overconsumption of alcohol leads to sin that's clear from scripture but you can't you can't make a case from scripture that alcohol is inherently sinful i mean guys jesus turned water into wine at a party so people could have more we can't get around that but for me personally i have a a conviction for me personally that i just i just i'm just going to stay away from it completely why? Because I can't take the chance of someone seeing the minister drinking alcohol. And I'm not talking about them making a judgment on the church or anything like that. What I don't want is for someone see me drinking alcohol who struggles with that. Someone who struggles with drinking to excess. Someone who has a, a family history of alcoholism. Someone who could see that and could say, well, the minister, minister's fine with it. I guess, I guess I should be fine with it. He's doing it. I should too. I want to follow his example. I never want anyone following my example and that leading them away from Christ. And so for me, this is just a personal conviction, right? I'm not going to make anybody else sit under the the personal conviction that I have in that area because it's not the same for everybody else, right? I cannot lay that personal conviction on you and then tell you that's the Lord's will for you. No, you have to make that decision for yourself. But one of the things that I want you to see here is this applies to us in all kinds of different ways personally. And so what's the application for you? Only you can know that. How is the Spirit of God going to convict you to lay down your rights for others? Now let's think about this also in terms of matters of opinion, brothers and sisters. Matters of opinion. And I'm thinking specifically About matters of opinion that are very controversial these days. What about mask wearing? And the choice of whether or not to take a vaccine? These are heavy, heavy topics that people have really, really strong opinions on. But brothers and sisters, these are matters of opinion. And the key is charity. The key is self-sacrificing love, caring more about the well-being of others than your own right to exercise your freedom in Christ. You may have a certain opinion on these things. Indeed, it might be a strong opinion. You might go so far as to say it's a conviction, right? That's fine, but what do you do when you're around others who disagree with you? You see, Paul says the mark of a mature Christian is, is sacrificing their own freedoms and rights for the good of the other person. But what that means is, on the flip side, the mark of an immature Christian is digging in their heels and asserting personal freedom and saying, I'm not changing what I do for anybody else. That would be the mark of an immature Christian, if they are a Christian at all. I want to tell you it's been very sad During the coronavirus pandemic, it's been very sad for me to talk to ministers and members of other churches. And I want to stress that this is other churches because we've been extraordinarily blessed in this area. It's been very sad to talk to ministers and members of other churches. And to hear the stories of folks who say they are following Christ and yet are digging in their heels and refusing to give up their own freedoms for the sake of their brothers and sisters people who are making things like this a test of fellowship saying i'm not i'm not going to go worship with somebody who's doing that or somebody who's not doing that making these things a test of fellowship brothers and sisters wearing a mask the choice of whether or not to vaccinate whether or not you support donald trump people are making this a test of fellowship i'm dead serious It's one of the saddest things going on in the church right now, and I think Satan is sitting back laughing because he's got people dividing over things like this. I'm not here to tell you which way to think on one of those issues. What I'm here to tell you is no matter what you think, the mark of a mature believer is laying down your own rights and preferences for the good of someone else, especially when they disagree with you. The mature Christian has the humility... The humility, brothers and sisters, to lay down their rights for the good of others. The mature Christian has the humility to lay down their right to be apologized to, and so they apologize first, even if the other person was wrong too. The mature Christian has the humility to submit to the authorities over them, like bosses or teachers or governors or elders in the church, even when they don't like what the authorities are asking. In fact, that's where the rubber really meets the road, isn't it? When those legitimate authorities over you are asking you to do something that you don't like. I'm not talking about they're asking you to sin. They're asking you to do something that just rubs you the wrong way. That's when the rubber meets the road. The mature Christian has the humility to lay down his right, to order his own day according to his own once in his own comfort, and scrap his plans for the day to help someone else that he just saw was in need. The mature Christian has the humility to do the job that no one else wants to do because at least it means that others will not have to do it. The mature believer has the humility to lay down their rights for the good of others. Freedom is a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters. Freedom is a wonderful thing. I am so glad that we are free in Christ in the New Covenant not to be under all of those laws in the Old Testament. There are so many laws, and I'm not saying there's nothing in the Old Testament that applies anymore. I'm not saying you just throw away the Old Testament. I'm saying the sacrifice laws, right? The food laws, the cleanliness laws, all the ways that Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament that we no longer have to worship by and go by. I'm so glad we are free in Christ. I'm so glad that curtain in the temple was torn in two when Jesus died, signifying now we have access to God, even though we are sinful. We're free in Christ. I'm so glad we're free in Christ. Freedom is a wonderful thing. For the longest time here in America, we have enjoyed freedom. A freedom that much of the rest of the world has not enjoyed. A freedom that was hard fought and hard won. Hard won. Freedom's a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, but this idea that nobody else is going to tell me what to do with my life, that is radically anti-Christian. In fact, it's anti-Christ. You hear what I said? Anti-Christ? It's anti-Christ. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so you could be sinning against Christ, brothers and sisters, by digging in your heels and saying, I'm not going to let anybody else tell me what to do. I'm not going to change my life for someone else. I'm not going to sacrifice my preferences for someone else. That's anti-Christ. We've got to look to Jesus as our ultimate example. Jesus, who could have stayed in his position of exalted authority, and yet came down. As a human, listen to Paul's words about Jesus from Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. He says, "...do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of all the people who had the right to dig in their heels and put their foot in the sand and say, no, not for anyone else, It was Jesus. And yet He is our ultimate example in laying down your rights for the good of others. Think about what He gave up to come here. Think about His willingness to die on a cross and to suffer in the way He did. And to be humiliated in the way He was. All for us. All for us who did not deserve it. Who were clearly and unashamedly sinning against Him. He dies for us. He gives it all up for us. So that, brothers and sisters, so that we could, we could learn verse 3 in our text. Verse 3 in our text could be true of us, where Paul says, it's not about knowledge, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Being known by God, brothers and sisters, what greater privilege is there in the universe than that God would know me it's not about knowledge it's about self-sacrificing love this is the Christian life laying down your rights your preferences your wants your comforts for others this is what should signify our lives this is what we should be we, we should be known by is laying ourselves down laying our own rights down for the good of others And so now, brothers and sisters, we want to give you just a few moments of silent prayer and reflection. Going to the Lord, responding to the Lord about what you've just heard. What has the Lord put on your heart? How is the Holy Spirit challenging you to apply this in your life? It could be different for every single one of us. And so we're all going to go to the Lord right now and respond to Him in silent prayer. And afterward, we'll come back and have a time of public response.